Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we will have with us Professor of Islamic Civilization, Jonathan Brown, who will be discussing his new book, Slavery and Islam. Today we are lucky to be joined by Professor of Islamic Civilization at Georgetown University, Professor Jonathan Brown. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Uh, Assalamu alaikum. I'm very uh, good. Thank you. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you very much. Um, now, as many of you will be aware, uh, Professor Brown has contributed a number of works within the field of Islamic studies that are taught across numerous institutions internationally. His previous contributions include Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy, The Canonization of Al-Bukhari and Muslim, and Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World. His most recent work, which will be the subject of today's conversation, is entitled Slavery and Islam. To begin with, uh, Professor Brown, could you speak uh, what led your interest in this particular topic? Uh, sorry, I got cut off for a second, I think. Yeah. About that. Yeah, so to begin with, could you perhaps speak a little bit about what led to your interest into this particular topic? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm always uh, honored that somebody's interested in my work, and so I'm, I'm happy to participate in this discussion. Well, for me, I mean, it really came out of actually like pretty much everything I write about. Uh, it came out of my own questions I had as a Muslim. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about this in the beginning of the book about like, I, I remember actually um, where I was when I what when it happened. I remember reading a translation of the Quran when I was first Muslim, it would have been around 1997 or so. And, and reading uh, verse in sort of the Nahal about a comparison between a free man and a slave and sort of the Quran is using this as like a, as a basis of a parable to talk about God and, and partners and free and you know, polytheists and believers but i was just shocked that you know it was it was sort of using kind of casually referring to slavery and i, I was just like i was like wait well, yeah, i thought slavery was wrong how can how can this be just sort of mentioned offhand and um it kind of just sort of swept it under the carpet but you know i think like a lot of muslims you know this this issue caused me a lot of of concern and i mean a lot of times i think people just sort of bury it and and assume that there's some answer or they, they try not to think about it or talk about it uh, but um, when I was doing the Misquoting Muhammad book, I, in the last chapter, I wanted to kind of have deal with two issues that I considered sort of like the ultimate challenges, interpretive challenges for Muslims in the modern period. And one of them was, um, you know, verse 434 about uh, striking one's wife. And then the other one was a slavery issue. And um, I realized that, you know, I couldn't do both of those in one chapter. And also, I just didn't know enough about slavery, um, sort of slavery studies to uh, to do that. So I kind of um, kind of just dropped it and, and focused only on the, the issue of uh, striking one's wife. And then um, then ISIS happened. And, you know, this sort of like people were not able to sort of sweep this under the carpet anymore. And it caused a huge crisis of faith for a lot of young Muslims and a lot of you know, old Muslims too. And, um, you know, because of ISIS is a revival of sex slavery and all this. And uh, so I remember, you know, discussing with other people at Yaqeen Institute where I, you know, I'm part of that. We rewrite a lot of stuff on Islamic issues of controversy. And, um, you know, we, we discussed like someone, we need to write something about slavery. So I said, okay, well, I'll do this. I'll write, you know, a couple part, I'll write sort of multi-part essay 
or through several essays on this issue. And I started to look into it and that would have been maybe December. I remember it was December of 2016. And so I really just dove into it. I just started reading obsessively about the topic. And I was really just initially um, trying to say, okay, well, how do we define slavery? That's the first issue. Um, and I mean, that's a very hot topic within slavery studies as well. Um, kind of sort of a little bit like terrorism studies where there's kind of a lot of debate about what exactly, how exactly you define terrorism. Um, and of course, there's a lot of politics around that as there is around uh, slavery. So I, um, I wrote the first part and uh, then I, um, you know, I gave a lecture about it and then, you know, that was a kind of interesting response to that. But I mean, uh, we can talk about that later. But then um, I, as I was doing this, like, you know, I, I contacted my publisher, publisher, Mr. Muhammad, and I said, you know, I, I think I'd, in the next edition of the book, I would like to kind of add in the issue of slavery to the last chapter, kind of as I had intended it in the beginning. And uh, the publisher said, well, you know, why don't you just actually write a, a whole book on the topic? And sure. I said, um, okay, well, <laughs> why not? And, and in the meantime, I had been... Uh, let's just say I had been stimulated a great deal on the issue. And so I really had a lot of uh, motivation, energy to look into it. And so I just really like took the next, it must've been about two years or a year and a half to sort of obsessively study it and, and try and write on this issue and kind of try and write a book that would be sort of like one-stop shopping for anybody who had questions about this. And, um, and it was like, but like I said, it was really in the end, it's about my own question. And so I, I feel my questions were answered. Cool. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Um, you did make reference to it. And if, if you don't mind me asking, back in 2017, when you did run a lecture uh, that, as you said, served as a precursor to the book, uh, you received, in fact, you received death threats, I believe, and were attacked by a number of far-right publications. Um, I mean, how did that episode impact you? And did it not deter you from writing a book about the same topic? Well, it's interesting. Like, that was such a weird time. I was right after the trump's inauguration it was january i think it was january or february 2017 around that time and it was sort of a weird time um for everybody i think like it was both sort of this this sort of people just realized what the alt-right was like suddenly people were talking about oh there's this thing called the alt-right and it was sort of the peak power of the alt-right and trump had brought all these islamophobes into his administration and um so there was this kind of intensified new intensification of islamophobia um, kind of a bold, emboldened Islamophobia. But at the same time, there was a huge new support from Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, so when this, I gave this lecture, I, I mean, I read the lecture. I even said this in the lecture. I said, I'm going to read this lecture because I was so nervous about it. And I never read a lecture, but I literally just read an article. Um, and then that was fine. No one got upset about the actual essay. They got upset about like the Q&A, um, which I, I mean, I think is kind of silly. You know, you 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 take someone, you know, if someone reads an hour long essay and then you take snippets from their Q and A and, you know, you get upset about that. I mean, I think that's, that's really to take that as kind of to really um, abuse the work that, uh, that professors or that scholars do. I mean, when you try and answer questions, you're of course answering them off, um, you know, in a sort of impromptu way. And, you know, you don't get to sit there and choose your words as you would if you were writing a book or something. Uh, But uh, anyway, so that was, you know, and it's funny, in, in, in retrospect, I actually don't think what happened to me that was that bad. Like, it's funny. I think that this world has become so crazy and so polarized that you can pretty much get death threats for anything nowadays. I mean, uh, so I don't, I don't, I mean, I actually, like, 
you know, it was weird. It was really scary. Um, but it wasn't in retrospect. I think that it was, it was pretty much standard for anybody talking about a relatively controversial issue. It was certainly weird to feel that much hate. I mean, it was like a, a new kind of experience. Almost, you could like feel a physical weight of hatred. Sure. But in retrospect, the thing that actually hurt me the most uh, wasn't that at all. It was, it was actually like the, you know, not very many, but a few academics who also like kind of joined in and condemned me. And that was really, I thought was pretty low because, you know, if you went into any academics classroom and recorded them answering questions in a class after they'd taught for an hour, I mean, you could say any number of things about them. And I, I thought that was pretty, pretty sleazy. Um, but uh, that wasn't very many people and a lot more academics you know, supported me and my university was very supportive. So in the end, um, it was not uh, that big a deal. So do you feel that Muslim to some extent may self-censor uh, and not explore sensitive issues because of a fear of a backlash um, in, you know, in these Islamophobic times? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, but I would, I would see it a little bit differently. I mean, it's tough to know because I mean, I, I really only know my own experience intimately and I don't want to speak for other professors because um, I think being a white guy, uh, you know, you, there's certain things you can't talk about um, maybe slavery being one of them, but, uh, but in a lot of other ways, like, you know, you, you, you enjoy a lot of protection uh, I think. Um, so I, I don't want to speak for other people, um, but I'll, sure. I'll say from my own perspective, I think that uh, there probably is self-censorship, but I, I would actually be, le I'm less afraid of Islamophobes than I am of kind of maybe like more left uh, censorship or criticism from the left, maybe kind of intolerance, um, kind of a liberal progressive intolerance. That's for someone who's kind of religious and for a university setting kind of on the more conservative side, um, Sure. Not in not in the world, uh, in globally, but just sort of in the little, little bubble of academia on the conservative side. Um, I think that's more of a, of a kind of something that I think about. Um, but I, I think that uh, it probably depends on the, the background or the the identity of, of the, the, the scholar in question. I think maybe if someone is a, a you know, an Arab Muslim working in the U.S. or a, it might be a different uh, different type of concern they have. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. That's been really insightful. Thank you for sharing. Um, now I'd like to move on to the book, if that's okay. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So your first, one of the first chapters in the book, uh, and you mentioned explores the problem of defining slavery and explores whether universal definition of slavery is possible. Uh, could you perhaps speak a little bit difficult to provide a universal definition of slavery? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, this is a really, I think any real discussion on this in world history has to begin with this question of definition because, um, and I, 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 I discuss this at length in the book, but I think really um, kind of, I think again, sort of terrorism studies is useful here because um, we're kind of thinking about like pornography, this idea that, you know, how do you define pornography? Well, you know it when you see it. Um, I think there's a, a really a sense in which uh, slavery studies in world history is really uh, a Western practice of 
looking through world history and talking about things that look like slavery to us and then trying to come up with definitions that sort of fit everything we want to put in that category and exclude things we don't want to put in that category. Sure. But the definitions never really work. So we end up kind of with definitions that don't fit what we want to put inside and outside of the category of slavery. And the second thing I think is very important is that this is highly politicized, right? So um, the history of slavery, the way that Western historians tell the history of slavery in the West and the history of abolition in the West is closely tied to how we I understand the identity of the West and kind of the historical trajectory and the historical destiny of the West, right? So the way that our experience of slavery, our experience of abolition is important for this. So um, in the end, it's sort of slavery becomes stuff that other people do, uh, right. not us. And so what that means is that after kind of the era of abolition in the mid to late 1800s, um, slavery, the power of the of slavery as a concept isn't in sort of the power of one group of human beings exploiting other group of human beings, but it's actually the kind of rhetorical power of labeling a suffering and or exploitation. So who is whose exploitation is to be condemned versus whose exploitation is sort of to be glossed over, whose suffering is to be kind of morally meaningful versus whose suffering is to be sort of mundane. And so the way that uh, people use the term today, and you can see this very clearly with debates over you know, modern day, so-called modern day slavery. Um, you can see that it, there's, there's, it's, it's highly contested even within the U.S. or within the Western kind of discourse community about, are we going to label this slavery? Are we going to label that slavery? When does something become considered slavery? You know, 20 years ago, nobody really talked about um, American prisoners as slaves, uh, prisoners in American prisons as slaves. Uh, now the same sort of theorists of modern day slavery who were very skeptical about calling uh, prisoners in American jails slaves. Now they're like, oh, uh, now I think we, we should reconsider it. And nothing changed. I mean, nothing changed about the condition of those prisoners. Nothing changed about the definition of slavery. It just became like that kind of the, the, the political football was sort of moved full farther uh, along the field. And advocates of prisoners' rights were able to kind of make arguments that these people's conditions were morally suspect and like, you know, that they, that, that, that they sort of deserve the moral sympathy that uh, we grant with the label of something as slavery. Sure. So, I mean, if I understand this correctly, what, what you're arguing is your critique, uh, a particularly Eurocentric approach to understanding Muslim history in that sense as well. Um, just because something existed in a particular way in North America and Europe doesn't necessarily mean it was practiced in the same way throughout history. Is that, would that be fair? Um, I would say that's true, but I don't want to, you know, I think it's very easy to go from there to kind of to jump into sort of very raw, um, clumsy apologetics and say, you know, well, slavery in other parts of the world wasn't that bad. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say. I mean, what I'm simply trying to say is when we in the West talk about, especially in the U.S., and we talk about slavery, it comes with a very specific set of uh, moral condemnations and understandings and uh, there may be things there are and there there are and they may be other lots of things in world history that are similar to or comparable to uh, slavery in the kind of Atlantic tradition. Sure. But um, they're not exactly the same. And they might not we might not want to kind of uh, label them with exactly the same kind of uh, label of moral of exactly the same amount of moral condemnation. Okay. And so we need to just be much more 
aware that um, we have our own kind of unique tradition of talking about this issue and that we shouldn't just sort of go around the world uh, kind of clumsily talking about other practices and traditions that might be maybe not very different, but different enough that we shouldn't just uh, talk about them in the same conversation. So in order to properly understand the things that took place historically, um, one should recognize one's own vantage point and the lens through which you're looking at those uh, practices. Yeah, and also, of course, we should realize that there, as I said before, this is a very politicized issue, right? So when, I mean, it's not, it is not a coincidence that the people that are usually accused of engaging in slavery are not white people. Okay. I mean, and they're very often Muslims and they're very, you know, so this history of kind of the white um, kind of liberator identifying the oppressed uh, brown or black person who's being enslaved by uh, other brown and black people and kind of bringing freedom to the, this is a very old uh, discussion, which is, used to justify, to motivate, to motivate uh, colonial activities, imperial activities. And it's still done uh, today for various, you know, uh, motive, you know, various uh, motives of cultural or political imperialism. And that's not to say that um, unacceptable oppression or exploitation doesn't happen. And that it's, it's not to say that we shouldn't identify it and try to remove it, but simply we should be aware that there's a lot more going on than simply kind of an objective and, um, value-free labeling of, of human activities. Okay, thank you. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Okay, uh, to move on to another section in the book. Um, you look at Rick in the Sharia, and mm-hmm. uh, you explore, uh, of course, there's, uh, you discuss a lot of different topics within that chapter. Uh, one of the arguments that you do make is there seems to have been an impetus to promote emancipation from the Fukaha, um, can you elaborate on this a little bit? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I think, I don't think it comes from the Fukuhai, the Muslim jurists. I think it comes from the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay. I mean, I don't think there's any, like, even if you were kind of a super revisionist historian and you thought that, you know, the Quran was written in the year 800 and, you know, every single Hadith is made up in the year 850 or something like that. Uh, there is no conceivable reading of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet that does not, would not conclude that they are not obsessed with emancipation. The Quran and the Sunnah are obsessed with emancipation, um, more so than any other religious tradition that I've come across, or even any philosophical tradition uh, prior to the 1700s that I've come across. Um, So there's sort of this unique obsession with emancipation in the Quran and the Sunnah. the, the emancipation as sort of a way of getting close to God, emancipation as a way of, uh, even sometimes a required way of expiating sins or, or, or paying for crimes. Um, and, uh, but of course, the, there's a difference, right, between abolition and an- emancipation. Emancipation is to free a specific slave or a specific number of slaves, whereas abolition is the idea of getting rid of the, the concept or the category or the practice altogether. Uh, so um, the irony is, of course, that um, the Muslim obsession with emancipation, which then gets even more expressed in the Sharia, in the law that is derived on the, from the Quran and Sunnah and in the practice of Muslims, this obsession with emancipation ironically actually probably fuels and spurs more enslavement because Muslims are constantly freeing slaves and therefore 
they have to constantly bring in new slaves to fill those labor needs in the medieval period. So you have like Islamic civilization sort of ends up being this like vacuum machine of um, because people are constantly being emancipated and kind of moved upward into the free population of Muslims. There's it sort of sucks in um, people from outside of Islamic civil, the abode of Islam as new slaves to fill in that that empty labor or that labor vacuum. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that the difference between the focus on emancipation and the difference between that and the idea of abolition. Uh, in the book, you have a section in which you discuss whether or not abolition is indigenous to Islam. Um, could you speak about this a little bit? Was was abolition a foreign concept to Islam? Yeah, I mean, so this is a, it's, it's an interesting topic because a lot of scholars whom I, I really respect and I love as people and as Muslims, I mean, they've they've written books and kind of given speeches. And this is a common thing you see with Muslim scholars, both academics and, and kind of more popular scholars or preachers, is this idea that kind of Islam came to end slavery. And then you can see this in the, if anyone's seen the 2015 movie Bilal, A New Kind of Hero, this, um, uh, this animated film, which is a really excellent film. I recommend people watch it. But, uh, you know, there's this idea in it that kind of... Um, Islam is sort of kind of break chains and end racism and stuff. And racism is another issue, but I mean, kind of break chains. Um, and you certainly can see uh, very clearly in the Quran, in the Sunnah of the Prophet, in the practice and the expressions of the early Muslim community, this idea that um, Islam frees people. So Islam uh, makes, as, as one, you know, the famous um, meeting between the, the Muslim ambassador and the Persian general as the Muslims enter Persia in the 630s, where he's, he says, you know, we've come to, uh, Islam's come to free people from being slaves to other people and made them the slaves of God alone, right? Um, so this kind of ra radical egalitarianism where everybody is equal because everybody's a slave of God. Um, so I think that there's certainly this kind of strong, strong, strong emancipatory impulse in the Islamic tradition, but uh, abolition is alien to Islam as a religion, not because there's some fault with Islam as a religion, because it, abolition was alien to everything, right? So nobody in human history, as far as I know, ever suggested or proposed getting rid of slavery until essentially the early modern period, right? So even if we watch movies like Spartacus and Spartacus says, you know, we're going to fight until we free every slave. You know, that's not actually what happened in, in the real revolt of Spartacus. The Spartacus and his rebels actually just took their own slaves. So all these slave rebellions in the, in the ancient world, the classical world and the Islamic world, right? They, they didn't end slavery. They just didn't want to be slaves themselves. And they took other people as their slaves. So nobody proposed, no society that had slaves ever proposed the abolition of slavery until the early modern period. And um, so there is no religion where abolition was, you know, authentic, that religious tradition. There was no philosophical tradition where abolition was authentic, that philosophical tradition. It's not something that human beings thought of. It would be like us saying today, like, let's abolish like chairs or let's abolish walking or something. It would make no sense. Uh, it's not really until you get to the, um, the, the, the late 1600s and especially the late 1700s and then into the early 1800s that you have really strong calls for the abolition of the, the actual practice and the institution of slavery. That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, Professor Brown, we had uh, 
Professor Bernard Freeman on a few weeks ago, and he's recently also written a book about slavery and Islam. And yeah. He, he made the argument that um, until anti-slavery readings of the Islamic tradition are promoted within the Muslim world, he felt that um, groups promoting slavery would continue to resurface. He made the argument that, for example, within certain classical texts, you can see uh, slavery being tolerated and legitimized. And because of that, he felt that uh, you know, certain groups like ISIS utilize these legal texts um, in order to justify their actions. Um, how would you respond to a claim like that? Do you think he has a point or would you disagree with that? I mean, I... I don't know. I think my comment would be kind of a little bit more like orthogonal to what he's saying. Uh, but I, I would simply say that I don't think there's any pre-modern Islamic legal text that doesn't treat slavery as normal. Like there's that the entire Islamic tradition treats slavery as normal until the 19th century. Sure. Um, uh, the Quran treats it as normal. The Sunnah treats it as normal. Right. So there's no like that's like saying you can't use the pre-modern Islamic heritage because it considers slavery normal, which is if, if, if that's your if you're saying we can't use any material or kind of draw on or, or look at any material that considers slavery normal. Well, you can't look at any material in the Islamic tradition prior to the 1800s. And by the way, you can't use any philosophical heritage or any religious heritage that I know of from any civilization prior to at the very earliest, like the 1600s. Right. So um, I think that's a you know, we kind of make a category, almost a category error when we start thinking like that. And, but I would also add that, you know, if you go um, in my experience, and I can only tell you kind of anecdotally, but I think this is fairly true, even in thinking about uh, other people's reading about other people's experience. Like, I, I don't know any place in the Muslim world where you go and people are just like, oh yeah, slavery is great. You know, oh yeah, no, slavery is wonderful. I mean, Muslims that you meet in Turkey or Egypt or Syria or Saudi Arabia or um, Indonesia, right? I mean, they uh, they're usually jump at any chance to say, oh no, slavery didn't really exist in Islam. It's uh, Islam came to end slavery, or you know, yes, there was slavery, but it's not like the slavery you're thinking about, right? So it's not like Muslims are are all out there just clapping their hands and applauding the idea of slavery. I, I don't, I think that, you know, global condemnation of ISIS was mm -hmm. sincere. Like there was, I mean, it wasn't like Muslims were like, oh boy, we better condemn ISIS so that we can, you know, get out of this bad PR situation. Like there was sincere disgust at what ISIS was doing. Sure. Um, so I think that, that uh, I would actually say that, um, you know, with a few exceptions, maybe that, that the general sentiment of, of the global population is tends to be very uh, negative towards sort of has really bought, you know, accepted the abolitionist consensus, which is that, you know, institutional protection of um, extreme forms of exploitation should not be tolerated. Okay, thank you. thank you so much. Uh, the final question I'd like to ask is actually, it's a question that I've previously, previously been asked. Um, and that is, while our discussion has to some extent focused on the historical, looking at the difficulty in understanding the past, um, for, for lots of Muslims, the Sharia isn't simply a historical tradition. It's something that they very much see as alive, something they live by and take their values from. And I think something you've alluded to in your previous answer also is that if there is an acceptance that the Quran allowed Rick and, you know, the Prophet mm -hmm. allowed Rick, um, 
why should Muslims discontinue this practice? You know, and how would, how would you respond to that? Okay, well, I mean that, that's uh, that's really kind of the the sort of mother of all questions, like the you know the, the or question uh, throughout this whole discussion, which is, you know, why, um, you know, when I was sitting there reading the Quran in. 1997 as a new Muslim, right? Um, if I believe the Quran is the word of God and I believe the, the prophet Sunnah has some moral authority over me, uh, why do I feel moral shock at something I read in these sources, right? So like either my moral sentiment is wrong or the Quran and Sunnah are wrong or I haven't figured out how to understand this issue correctly. Um, so if you think that the Quran and Sunnah are wrong, well, that's kind of problematic if you want to be Muslim. And a lot of people today are, are their sense that slavery is wrong runs so deep that they, they really can't fathom questioning that, that moral sentiment. Right. So you're left with the sort of choice of how do I reconcile these two or is it possible? And is it possible to do that in a kind of authentic and and sincere way? Um, So I I think that it it is definitely possible. Um, uh, one is that uh, is simply to say, and, and I, I think this is just demonstrably the truth, uh, although it's uncomfortable to say, which is that, you know, not everything that we today label as slavery in world history was a transhistorical moral evil, right? So that's just um, like if you if the, if you believe that the prophet had slaves and allowed slavery. Um, and you believe that was a trans-historical moral evil, even back then, then the prophet was engaging in a absolute moral evil, which if you say that, according to any understanding of Islam that I know of, you know, you're not a Muslim anymore. And in addition, just sort of practically speaking, why would you take religious or moral guidance from somebody who thought that slavery was okay? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Would you, would you take advice from somebody who came up to you today and was like, hey, I, I think slavery is okay. And, and also let me give you some moral advice, right? You know, sure. get, get out of my face. So, um, you know, we just have to accept that, that, that sort of morality is not, on, on some issues, morality is not constant in world history. And that's un- uncomfortable for us to talk about, but I think it's, uh, it's sort of undeniable uh, in some cases. And, um, and then you have the question of, okay, well, how do I understand the fact that, or how do we conceptualize or justify abolition? So if the prophet allowed it, if the Quran allowed it, if the Quran and the prophet allowed it, why, you know, you can't prohibit what the prophet allowed? Well, that's not true. You can, you can prohibit what the prophet allowed. It happens all the time, right? I mean, um, the Quran doesn't prohibit uh, driving your car over 65 miles an hour, yet states prohibit that. You know, the, there's all sorts of things that are prohibited in our world that are not prohibited by the Quran and the Sunnah. And that's, that's, my book has an extensive discussion of this. I think it's actually the most extensive discussion anywhere of this issue of what's called taqid al-mubah, or the restriction of the permissible. So the Muslim rulers are allowed to legally restrict, kind of administratively restrict actions, previously licit and per- permissible actions of Muslims. And they're, able to, they're allowed to do that if it, if it promotes some common good or you know, maslaha. So uh, it's very easy to say that, look, we're, we're in a situation now we know, you know, human beings don't rely on human labor for, to move things or to generate power, right? We have fossil fuels and things like that. Um, uh, slavery is economically unnecessary. Slavery is like oppressive and undesirable. Uh, 
having people in these situations is, is, is oppressive. It's undesirable for them. And by the way, Muslim scholars always recognize, they always recognize that, that Rick caused harm. Okay. They always said that there is, there is darar in Rick. Unlike what some scholars, like Khalid Abufadl says that, that uh, and I have a lot of respect for him, but he says that Muslim scholars considered slavery to be evil, uh, shar or qabih, but there is simply no evidence of that. And uh, the, the citation he gives in his books on that uh, from Qadi al-Jabbar actually isn't found in Qadi al-Jabbar's books. And in fact, Qadi al-Jabbar actually says that because the Quran and the Prophet allowed slavery, that we know that it cannot be evil. It cannot be intrinsically evil because it's inconceivable that the Quran and the Prophet would allow something that's evil. So, but, but Muslim scholars did always say that, that rik causes harm, dorar. It causes harm because people can't make free choices. It causes harm because they can't um, enjoy the fruits of their labor in the way they want. It causes harm because they're not complete legal people, right? They're not complete legal persons. And so that's, that's why emancipating somebody is a good action because it, it, it removes that harm. But, they, the, so, but for them, the harm was justified because there were other things in play. There was property rights. There was benefits to the owner or benefits to the slaves that they saw. I know that's a controversial issue. Um, but today we can say, look, we don't need, this harm is needless. Like there's no reason to have this harm inflicted on people. So it's, it's, it's very much within the right of a Muslim ruler or a Muslim state and very much within the tradition of Muslim rulers and Muslim jurists to say that we should restrict permissible actions if uh, that promotes a common good. In this case, the, the, the ending of the harm of slavery. So uh, it's not really controversial. It's very easy in Islamic law to justify abolition. It's very easy. The thing that's challenging is to answer the question of why it was ever allowed in the first place. And that's, I think, like the, the kind of the, the big challenge. And I, I think I've addressed that in my earlier answers. Sure. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have listened to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.